Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, David. Thanks, Ardeth. Well, David, when he picked the songs, he picked really short songs. Uh, so I have an extra 15 minutes to preach. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We started studying this passage last week, and we talked about the big picture of the passage. Uh, the saying goes that there are some people who can't see the forest because of all the trees. There are certain people that are so very detailed that they get caught up in the details and they forget the big picture. And there are certain people who are giving me a look now because they're feeling God's conviction. Last week, we talked about the big picture first of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We talked about how a community is supposed to respond to blatant, unrepentant sin among them. We talked about how God desires our holiness. So we as a community, when we see blatant, unrepentant sin within the community, we should mourn, we should judge, and we should purge the sin among us. Now, speaking of the community, we are talking as those who are followers of Jesus Christ toward those who are followers of Jesus Christ within that local church. That's the forest. Today we're going to talk about the trees. Instead of talking about individual, uh, instead of talking about the community, the big group, we're going to talk about individuals. How, what is our individual application towards this passage? We in the United States are big on individual responsibility. At least we were used to being big on individual responsibility. Uh, Midwest towards the West. It was built on the pioneers who said, I'm going to forge out my own life and I'm going to rip apart this land in front of me. I'm going to make this land bow to my will. And I'm going to raise my family because it's my responsibility to make a living for my family. Freedom, the pioneering spirit, all boosts this individual responsibility. And that is great. It's good, but sometimes we forget individual responsibility when it comes to our life and the sin in it. We start pointing fingers and saying, no, it's because of that. No, it's because of that. Instead of looking and saying, nope, this is my life and I'm going to have responsibility for my life. So how are we to react to the sin among us? Let's read our passage again. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled... And I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? 
Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Will you pray with me? Father, you know, as I told you last week, there are certain passages I have a hard time preaching through. But you've placed them here for our use, for our edification. Lord, help us to see the world through your mindset, through your worldview, instead of our own sinful brokenness. Help us to see it as you see it so that we can live it as you want us to live it. And as we study this passage, Lord, I ask that you would help us to understand it and help us to put it into practice for your honor and glory. Lord, we as your church want to live in a way that shows people around us that we are yours, that you are the one who died to save us. So Lord, teach us how to live that way. And may we willingly throw off the old self that tells us differently. As I'm up here, Father, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. So we're going to spend a lot of time diving into the middle verses of this passage, the ones that talk about leaven. I just read it, but we're going to read it again. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8 are the verses we're really going to tear apart today. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 to 8. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is bringing in an illustration of his Jewish heritage. Every year, the Jews would celebrate the Feast of Passover, the day of Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread right afterwards. It commemorated when God saved them from the Egyptians back in the day and brought them to the Promised Land. He, in the process of delivering them from Egypt, he led them through ten plagues. The last plague was when the death angel came through Egypt and he was going to kill the firstborn of all humans and animals, Egyptians and Israelites. Everyone, gone, firstborn, across the board. Unless people went through a certain ritual where they would take a lamb, they would slit its throat, allow the blood to bleed out, and they would take that blood and smear it over the doorpost and sides of their doors. If they did that, the death angel would pass over the house and that people in the house would be saved. If they did not do that, the firstborn would die. And anyone could do it. Israelite or Egyptian could 
kill this lamb and smear the blood. The day of the Passover and the following Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Unleavened Bread celebrated when the Israelites were leaving Egypt and all they could bring was unleavened bread because they had to make it hurriedly. They couldn't allow time for that bread to rise because they were leaving so quickly. The two important things happened during the celebration of these events every year. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, everyone removed all the old leaven from their homes during that week. You chucked it out. This was practical because as I talked about last week, when leaven gets to a certain age, it could make you sick, it could even kill you. So they would take this smelly, moldy mess, throw it out, and they'd start with new unleavened bread that week. And that unleavened bread would be the basis for their starter loaf and supply them with bread all the rest of the year through that leaven until the next Feast of Unleavened Bread. They'd throw that out, start with new. As we talked about last week, leaven is used to symbolize sin. We're to remove it so that sin doesn't take over and ultimately lead to destruction and death in our life. Paul also talks about then the Passover lamb that was killed every year celebrating that first Passover lamb back in Egypt. He says that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He was killed so that we would not have to die. His blood is placed on our life so that judgment will pass over us. Every Israelite on that fateful night in Egypt had a choice whether to kill that lamb and smear the blood on the doorposts. Every Israelite had the choice to do it or not. Those who did not do it, the firstborn died. I'm sure there were some that didn't do it. In the same way, we all have a choice whether to accept Christ's death for us. Those that make that choice to believe in Jesus, this conscious decision that, yes, I will believe in Jesus for my salvation, his death is applied to our account. We're saved. But we each have to make that choice. No one else can make the choice for us. Those who do not make, make the choice to trust Jesus for their salvation, the death is not for them. Destruction will not pass over them at the end of time. In the spirit of the Passover festival, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Paul says that we are to celebrate every day by how we live. If we have placed ourselves under the covenant of Jesus, his blood is on our account, therefore we should then live accordingly. Namely, Paul says, we are to get rid of the sin that is in our midst and live with sincerity and truth. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 8, he says, Let us keep the festival, not with old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What does that look like? If we see old, stinky, rotten, smelly, moldy leaven in our life, what are we supposed to do with it? Paul says, first, that we are to be disgusted with our old leaven. We are to be disgusted by our old leaven. We are to keep, he says, the festival with the unleavened bread of sincerity. If we are disgusted with our old leaven, we are to live with a way that is free from hypocrisy and deceit. Sincerity is when we live the way that we say we are. If we say that we are a follower of Jesus Christ, we therefore live that way. I'm not going to stand up here and assume that everyone who attends Calvary Bible Church is a follower of Jesus Christ, because I know that is not a fact. We all attend church for different reasons. And there are some that come because they're a follower of Jesus Christ. There are some that come because there is a stirring in their heart or in their spouse's heart 
and they're not quite there yet to jump on board with a follower of Jesus Christ, but they still come. Other people come because that's just what you do. You go to church, and they thought that by going to church, possibly that would bring salvation, but it doesn't. It's that conscious decision to believe in Jesus for salvation. That is what does it. Everyone must come to a point in their life where they make a decision to trust Jesus Christ as salvation for their souls. When we make that decision, as Paul says in Romans 10 verse 9, he says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. So when we make that decision, we are saved. As John says in John 1, 12, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When we make this decision, believing and receiving Jesus Christ, our life is changed. We're called to live in line with that change, to follow Jesus with our life. When we say that we are a follower of Jesus Christ, but we are living sinfully, blatantly, unrepentantly, we are being a hypocrite. We are not being sincere. And it is for us to wake up and be disgusted with our old leaven and seize that sincerity. When we're disgusted with our old leaven and we want to live in sincerity now, there are three steps to take, Paul says. The first step is that we confess. We confess. Two weeks ago on Father's Day, we talked about blamelessness. We said that blamelessness does not mean that we are sinless because no one is sinless. It means that nothing can be held against us. There's no gotcha moment of like, aha, I found your secret sin because there is no secret sin. I recently, a couple weeks ago, when my wife was gone, cleaned out my garage. <laughs> That's coming, Chuck. My desk is coming. <laughs> one step at a time. <laughs> Got to start with the easy one first. As I was cleaning out my garage, I found a whole bunch of stuff. Some of it was good stuff. Some of it was old parts that I had stored just in case I needed it from things I'd gotten rid of six years ago. Do I have an amen? Anyone relate? Okay, yeah, okay. So I was looking at all this stuff, and wives, you can't start elbowing your husbands. Please, do not. <laughs> I was looking at all this stuff, and I was like, okay, it's time to get rid of it. I haven't used it. I'm never going to use it. Chuck it. The dump loved me that day. The blameless person doesn't store up sins in the garage of their life. There's not things that you're just hiding in a closet or a box, hoping that no one will find it. The blameless person throws open those garage doors and says, this is my life. This is what it is. And I want the world to know it so I can be sincere and so I can start changing. We as humans, we don't like confession. We don't like people saying that we are messed up, broken, desperately in need of God's grace. But if we are followers of Jesus Christ, that means we are followers of the one who is light. John calls him light in John chapter 3 verse 19. John 3.19, he says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. No one wants to bring their evil deeds to life. We do not want to, but Jesus is the light. 
He shines his light in our life, even when we're not following him. He knows everything about us. He knows everything that we have done. He has seen our sin, even the th- what thing that we think no one has known for the past 30, 40 years. He sees it. And what did he do when he saw it? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He saw our sin. It wasn't hidden from him. And he didn't say, oh, that is horrible. He said, yes, that deserves judgment, but I love this person. I'm going to die for them because I want a relationship with them. So if he knows our sin and he died for our sin, he earned forgiveness and justification for our sin, he promised an eternity with him even when we're sinful, even through our sin, we have an assurance of this Why are we so concerned about what other people think about our sin? Well, number one, we're afraid that they're going to hurt us. People can still hurt us right now, and they can do some pretty hurtful things. And even though their actions toward us because of our sin is temporary, it still hurts. It does. Our actions could be pretty nasty. And there's some sins that we've been hiding in the back corner there, hoping no one will see, because the consequence for that sin, even when we confess it, might land us some pretty severe consequences. I don't think that's true for any of us here, but there are some people who could confess their sin, they could be thrown in jail for the rest of their life. We might be afraid of people hurting us, we might be afraid of the consequences of our sin, but if we are a follower of Jesus Christ who is the light of the world, we are called not to walk in darkness. We are called not to be a hypocrite, but in sincerity to state who we really are. And God promises to bless those who will follow him in this way. He doesn't promise to take away the consequences, but he promises to bless. So, we're going to get this over with. Turn to someone near you. (laughs) You all are like, "Uh uh-oh, what's he doing? (laughs) Turn to someone, it's okay. Look them square in the eyes and say, I am a sinner. Oh, state it with confidence. Okay, did anyone get any shocked reactions when you said that? Anyone shocked? That you, no, no. We all know that each other are sinners. We know that. The problem, the hang-up is inside of us. We're afraid people knowing that we're a sinner, even though they already know it. When we confess, normally, we are met with grace and love. Yes, we could be met with consequences. We need those consequences, but that comes later in the sermon. Who do we confess to? If we have sinned and we need to bring that to light, who do we confess to? Well, the Bible doesn't talk about going into a box and talking into a window to someone we cannot see. That's not the confession that's going on here. Confession is when we go to brothers and sisters in Christ and we say, I have sinned against God, I have hurt someone. We, we go to the person that we have hurt and sinned against and we tell them, I acknowledge what I did was wrong, it was against God, it was against you, and I realize it hurt you, please forgive me. Sorry is just emotion, please forgive me. And then we go to someone who is our accountability and without them know, hey, I sinned in this way, I need you to hold me accountable so I don't do it again. That's who we confess to. 
We don't have to stand in front of the church and pull out our long laundry list because we'd be here all week if everyone did that. We don't have to do that. But if God, if the Holy Spirit is encouraging you to do that, we have the time. You could stand up and say, pray for me, church. I need your help with this sin in my life. I appreciate Jacoby so much because that's what he does. He comes up and says, hey, I've blown it this week. Pray for me. He's an example to all of us. He is. Confession. We are here as a family. We want to pray for each other. So know that any confession that is made will be met with a promise of prayer and a big hug. That's what we are here for. Hopefully it is. And my encouragement is someone comes and confesses sin, don't take out the baseball bat. Meet him with a promise of prayer and a big hug. We are disgusted by our old leaven, so we confess it. We confess it. While we confess it, we repent. We repent. Paul says something very interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. He says, Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He calls the Corinthians to get rid of the sin that's in their life, to be people of sincerity. Then he says, do it because you are already this. Get rid of the sin, live in sincerity because you are already this. If we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are new creations. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. Paul is calling the Corinthians, he's calling all of us to live in line with who we really are. So when we find ourselves living in line with someone or something else other than Jesus Christ, we are to stop, change, and come back. That's the process of repentance. Now, before everyone falls asleep, I need a volunteer. Thank you, Percy. I was hoping that one of my kinesthetic visual learners would be here. So come on up, Percy. Yeah. <laughs> I also appreciate that you always volunteer before you know. <laughs> okay, I just need you to pretend that this is a rocky path in the middle of a forest. Dad? And just walk along it. He's walking along the path, doing a great job. All of a sudden, he sees a sign that says, Stop! <laughs> Have you ever had a sign that yells at you like that? No? Okay, this one did. It stops. He stops. And the sign reads on it, in 100 feet, there is a vertical drop, and you will die if you keep walking on this path. Don't you wish that sign makers would be so succinct as I am? Okay. Percy, what do you do? Thank you. <laughs> you are a smart man. Shake my hand. Give him, give him applause. Go sit down. That's repentance. You go down the path and you realize that the road you're leading on leads to destruction and death and you don't want to go there. So you turn around and go the opposite direction, back to where you should be. Confession is saying, I did wrong. Repentance is doing something about it. Changing your ways. I love the letter Paul wrote to the Ephesians. It's a simple outline. The first three chapters says, our salvation is amazing. And chapters four to six says, therefore let us live like our salvation is amazing. And in chapter four, he says, 
uh, about the sins of the Ephesians past. He says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And then Paul goes on and gives a list of sins that they were supposed to throw off, and then things that they were supposed to put on instead of living. Repentance, putting off the old, taking on the new. Repentance is we stop doing what we're doing, we do something differently, specifically something that is in line with Christ-likeness. So we're disgusted by our old leaven, so we confess, then we repent, then finally, wait for it, the word that no one uses, we delimit. We delimit. I texted Brooke two weeks ago as I was preparing this sermon, and I said, I challenge you to use this word in your article Did you use it, Brooke? Oh, come on. No one uses this word. It means to set up a boundary. And I could have, when I was preparing this sermon, I could have said, we confess, we repent, we set up a boundary. But I wanted one word things. So, delimit. Confess, repent, delimit. And it just falls off your tongue. Paul set up a boundary for the Corinthians. He says in verse 8, Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He knows the pet sins of the Corinthians, and he tells them, stop doing your pet sins. Instead, keep within a well-defined space. This well-defined space is Christ-likeness. Be happy with what's in the box. That is not Christ-likeness. Stay away from it. We all have pet sins that we need to throw outside our well-defined space. The author of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. Hebrews 12, 1 to 2, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Sometimes throwing off sin is very easy. We look at sin in our life and we say, I'm not going to do that anymore, and then we don't. I am completely in awe with some smokers who are able to cut smoking cold turkey. It blows my mind because I do not find throwing off sin that easy. There's sin in my life that I've struggled with that I'm still in the process of throwing off after 20 years in my life. It is hard. Have you ever been convicted of words that you use? You don't want to use them, but they keep going around and around and around in your head. And all of a sudden, when you're not thinking about it, when you're not watching your tongue, they come out. Perhaps you're addicted to something, and you keep fighting, you keep fighting, you keep fighting, the desire just grows and grows and grows and grows within you, and all of a sudden you explode and you go right back to it. Fighting sin is hard. Sometimes it takes delimitation. That's a really fun word to say. It takes a boundary to be set up. We look at our lives, we've confessed our sins. We have decided we're not going to go back to that sin. We don't want to go back to it. It's disgusting us. We want to live Christ's likeness. We don't want to live the sin that we discussed. So we have to set up roadblocks because we don't want to go back to it. 
Too often are in our lives, we're like the stubborn old horse that always wants to go back to the barn. And we're going this way, and like, nope, there's the barn, I like it. And we got to stop it and set up a boundary, a fence, to keep that old horse to not go back to the barn. What does that look like? Sometimes it means changing friends. It can be seem drastic at times, but sometimes our friends bring us back to sin and we have to say, no, we are not going to be around these friends anymore. We're not going to do it because the sin disgusts me and I don't want to go back to it. Maybe it means driving a different way. I, I was living in an urban area for a short period of my life that I'm so glad I'm not living in that area anymore. I do not like cities. And the more I stay out of cities, the more I realize how much I do not like cities. But I was listening to an urban pastor, and he was talking about drunkenness. And he said, if you have a problem with drunkenness, and you don't want to go back to it, and every time you drive by that liquor store, you get the temptation, he said, just drive a different way. Which is great when you live in a city. But if you live out in the middle of nowhere, that driving a different way might put 25 miles onto your trip, at the least. But if we hate our sin so much, and if that liquor store is that much of a stumbling block, are we willing to do whatever it takes to stop ourselves from going back to what we discussed? Maybe what we need to do is lock down our device so that we can't go anywhere on the internet. It might be painful. It might really get in the way. It might cause people to ask, why in the world can't you get on the internet in your phone? And you have to tell them, and that's just awkward. But do we hate our sin so much that we're willing to stop ourselves from anything that will lead us back to it? Maybe it means quitting our job and getting a different one. All because we don't want to go back to our sin. We create as many boundaries as we can to stop ourselves from getting back to our, to our sin. We're disgusted by our old leaven, so we confess it, we repent, and we delimit. Okay, we're halfway through the sermon. Anyone need to jump up and down, shake yourselves off? Not only are we disgusted by our sin, but we're disgusted by his sin. Not only are we disgusted by our old leaven, but we're disgusted by his old leaven. So, turn to someone near you and say, you disgust me. Now, I probably should have been a little more careful because it sounded like some of you meant that. <laughs> At the beginning of June, I taught seven sessions for Camp Assurance for their staff training. I had kids from the ages of 12 to about 25. So a wide range of kids. At the end of those seven sessions, I asked those students, I said that you could ask me anything you wanted to. And then I got really scared. <laughs> they asked some really good questions. One person asked, 
how they should respond to Christian friends of theirs who accept as normal homosexuality in others because in the words of those friends, it doesn't hurt anyone, this lifestyle. So shouldn't we be loving? And they asked, how should they talk to these Christian friends who have this perspective? It was a really good question. They had a whole bunch of other questions like that too. We as humans very easily write sins off. It used to be that gossip was the pet sins of the American church. No pastor preached on it and everyone did it. You can look through the archives of Calvary Bible Church and you can find that popping up a lot. Then culture progressed and other sins became more accepted. Premarital sex became accepted and then cohabitation and just built and built and built and now homosexuality. We as humans tend to stop looking at sin the way God does. We look at sin the way the culture tells us to. And it says, what harm is there in doing this or, or doing that? We don't see any harm, therefore, let people do whatever they want to. But we forget that God has given us a manual for life and has clearly told us what will, beyond a shadow of a doubt, bring harm to our life. We are guaranteed that if we indulge in certain things, that harm will come to us. And it is guaranteed that when a community exalts these things, or at least turns a blind eye to these things, harm will come to that community. You can look through nations after nations throughout history, and one of the last steps of democracies completely imploding and disappearing is the overall acceptance of homosexuality in that culture. When we see sin lived out blatantly around us. We should be disgusted by that sin, no matter what the sin is. We in America are disgusted by homosexuality and abortion these days. The, the, the fundamental Bible-believing church is. But we're supposed to be disgusted by all the sin. Even gossip and lying and disobedient to parents and cheating. It's all on the same level to God. We're to be disgusted by sin no matter what the sin is, no matter who is doing the sin. We're to be disgusted by it. If we are disgusted by it, we will take three things. We will do three things in response to the old leaven that we are disgusted by in the person next to us. First, we will exhort them. We will exhort them. There are some people who love exhorting. There are some people who hate it. There are some people who have the gift of exhortation. There are some people that don't. The fun ones are the ones who have the gift of exhortation, but who hate doing it. They're in this emotional turmoil all the time. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 2, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? The Corinthians were supposed to come up to this man and tell the truth that what he was doing is wrong. Some people continue in their sins because no one has ever told them that what they're doing is wrong. And so they do it. If only when someone would have the guts to step up to them, tap them on the shoulder and say, hmm, this isn't right. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Romans 7, verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would, have no, would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. We naturally sin and we naturally continue in sin until someone comes up and says, 
this is the word of God and this is where it says it's wrong. So we exhort. Now what does it mean to exhort? It doesn't mean that you walk up to someone with a baseball bat in your hand and you slam them across the face and say, repent you sinner, fall on your knees. It's not what exhortation means. Exhortation means we come up to someone humbly because that person could be us the next day. We come up to them humbly and we lovingly show them in Scripture how their actions are against God. And we let Scripture do the work, not us. It's him, not us. And when conviction comes through Scripture, we then are able to explain Jesus' grace, how his death on the cross died for that sin. And to repeat the words of Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 11, when he comes to the woman caught in adultery, and he says a powerful phrase that so often we split up and either do one or the other. He looks at the woman caught in adultery and says, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. There are people who are on the neither do I condemn you, therefore do whatever you want to path. And there's people who are on the leave your life of sin, but bring a whole bunch of condemnation. But Jesus says, I don't condemn you, but you better not go back to it. That is exhortation. We are disgusted by his old leaven, so we exhort. Not only do we exhort, but we strengthen. No one can break the tangles of sin by themselves. We need each other. Paul asked the Corinthians to do a drastic thing to this man caught in this sin. They were to throw him out of the church so that he would repent and come back. If the church hadn't banded together, the man would not have changed from his sinful ways. We are here as the church of Jesus Christ to give each other strength to fight against sin. Hopefully it doesn't come to the drastic point where we have to throw someone out of the church and say, I'm sorry, but you're not part of the fellowship until you repent. Hopefully it can stop at what Paul talked about in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 2, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. When he talks about carrying each other's burdens, that is in the context of helping someone who is caught in sin. We pick up their burden to help them struggle against them, to help them carry the load. We're disgusted by the old leaven, so we exhort, we strengthen. Finally, the last step, we hold accountable. That's a phrase, I couldn't find a one-word synonym for that phrase. So we hold accountable. Technically, accountability is part of strengthening, but I need to talk about it separately. When we think about accountability, sometimes what comes into people's minds are 12-step groups, where you sit around in a circle, where everyone's there, and you say, hi, my name's Peter Sample, and I've addic I'm addicted to ice cream, and it's been 14 hours since I've last eaten it. <laughs> True story. We think about that for accountability. But we also, there's another accountability that comes to mind. Maybe it's, it's when you have someone who knows about your struggle against sin, and that person calls you or texts you either at specific times like once a week or randomly, and they ask you a set of questions. At the end, they might say, have you lied to me during these? Uh, that's accountability too. And I've got friends around the United States who will do that for me. Accountability. Biblical accountability is those things with an additional element. Biblical accountability is when you come up to someone and you say, you know, I struggle against sin in my life and I don't want to go back to it. I need your help. 
And will you commit to be available to me at any time of the day or night to help me when I'm struggling in that moment? Biblical accountability is when someone can reach out and say, I really want to indulge in my sin right now. I need your help so that I do not indulge in it. Because by myself, I'm going to jump right in. It's amazing what happens when we are able to confess to our inner sin and God gives us strength through a brother and sister in Christ to get through that sin. There's lots of people who, who talk about Joseph running from his, the sexual sin with Potiphar's wife and how he fleed the sin. And, and they go to Timothy where, where Paul says, flee youthful lusts. And they exhort people, flee from the sin. And that's well and good if you have the strength to move your leg to start running. But if you don't have that strength to start running, you're just going to jump back in that sin and you need a brother and sister in Christ to pick you up and run for you. That is accountability. God desires our holiness. He desires our holiness. So we are to be disgusted at our sin. We are to be disgusted at his sin. And that should push us to confess, repent, delimit, exhort, strengthen, and hold accountable. All so that we as the body of Christ, who confess to be believers and followers of Jesus Christ, can push each other towards him, that our life might reflect him to the world around. The world around doesn't know this life. They don't know this ability to be transparent and open and honest. They've never seen it. But when they are able to see it, and they're able to see people accept each other for who they are, but yet push each other to be more than they are, that's when the gospel shines forth. Today, we celebrate the gospel. We celebrate how the gospel creates this transparency and this ability and strength for brothers and sisters to push us to him as we celebrate communion together.